Hello and welcome to episode 311 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today. I haven't mentioned the mighty Leeds United for a while, for obvious reasons, but just thought I would throw it in early this week. I'm delighted that today's story was written by my friend and author Chris Wood. Thank you, Chris. We hear of a vast array of crimes on this podcast, many of which appall us, confuse us, and quite frankly, they sometimes terrify me. Today's case perhaps does all of these things. A more senseless murder it would be difficult to imagine. But besides this, it's likely to provoke a question of what would I have done if any of us had been unfortunate enough to have witnessed the incident. But this was not some underworld killing hidden away from public consciousness. Rather, an act of brutality carried out in the middle of the day in our capital city. No adverts today, so don't be sad. There'll be one next week. Before we start, I just want to thank quickly all my supporters at Patreon, especially the new members of our community there. That is Kate Pennell, Phoebe and Sean Davidson. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest of the month from Year Game. Top of the UK charts was Jamiroquai with Deeper Underground. In the US, the top spot was filled by The Boy Is Mine from Brandy and Monica. And in Australia, the fourth highest selling album this year were The Backstreet Boys with Backstreet's Back. Did it ever really go away? In the news this month, Hong Kong's new airport opened. The Mask of Zorro and Saving Private Ryan were released. The government announced a total ban on the use of landmines by the British military. And in Northern Ireland, the Dum Cree conflict saw Jason Quinn aged 8, Mark Quinn aged 9 and Richard Quinn aged 10 killed when their home was petrol bombed by loyalists. Once again, there are no words for these actions which killed three young boys who had no idea why the grown-ups were arguing to such a level about the right or no right to walk down a road. So did you guess the month and year? It was July 1998. Today's story comes from Vauxhall Bridge in central London. There has been a bridge at this crucial crossing of the Thames since the early 1800s, and the modern bridge goes from Pimlico in the north to Vauxhall in the south. The south of the area, if you know it, is dominated by the Secret Intelligence Service's modern building. 56-year-old Herbie Williams was a retired transport mechanic. He was a gentle, church-going man, someone of upstanding principles and beliefs, respected by all who knew him. A devout Christian, Herbie was a man who personified calm. He saw the good in everything and everyone, and lived a life where he sought to improve the lives of those around him, whether they were known to him or not. Perhaps the most confirming indicator of these traits was Herbie's volunteering work, which he performed with the Southwark Victim Support Scheme, which, as you'll know, is the independent charity for victims and witnesses of crime in England and Wales. One fateful summer's day in 1998, however, would shroud Herbie's voluntary work in a cloak of dark irony as he himself became a victim of the most devastating kind. 
On the 15th of July, Herbie was at Westminster Cathedral where he prayed regularly. At around 12.30pm at London's Victoria bus station, a woman boarded the 185 bus which terminated at Lewisham. The woman made for the back of the bus and settled into the corner seat. But a short way into the journey, a man she didn't know boarded the bus and he sat uncomfortably close to this woman despite the bus being relatively empty at this point. The woman later said that I felt this energy from him which made me feel afraid to do anything that might upset him. Indeed, she was so afraid that she was not even prepared to ask the man to move off her jacket which she'd sat on. This type of scenario is something that many of us have experienced, isn't it? To some degree or another. And her fear and trepidation to say anything to a stranger is an experience that we can all relate to. As the bus continued on its route, it began to pick up more passengers, one of whom was Herbie, Herbie Williams, who was making his way back to his Peckham home in southeast London. The man on the bus was by now attracting all manner of looks from the passengers as he continued to display some rather odd and unpleasant behaviour. He was continually uttering angry profanities and behaving in a generally unsetting and unruly fashion. Having finished drinking from a soft drink bottle, he leaned across Herbie and flung his empty bottle outside onto the street below. Herbie wasn't having this, and he politely asked that the man refrain from such littering. The man of principle that he was, Herbie's response was perhaps not a surprising one. Although, how would you have reacted in a similar situation? I guess most of us would consider this type of behaviour as antisocial and unacceptable. But whether or not we would be prepared to voice this in response to a stranger who seemed agitated is quite a different matter. I'm not sure I'd have actually said something to this man, would you? And the vast majority of the other passengers, there were 37 now on the bus, thought similarly and decided to keep their heads down and just turn a blind eye to what was going on. Herbie's remonstrations with this man didn't have the desired effect. Instead, it only seemed to agitate the man further as his anger and hostility grew. Leave me alone, I've got a knife, I'll cut you, he shouted at Herbie. The man was now shouting continuously. A barrage of abusive language filled the bus and the passengers were filled with dread and fear at just what he might do. With this situation escalating, Herbie decided to get off the bus at a bus stop just after Vauxhall Bridge. This wasn't Herbie's normal stop but at this point he just wanted to avoid any further confrontation with this man and wanted to escape the vitriol that was heading his way. At 12.44pm, Herbie stepped off the bus, but was immediately followed by the man who appeared loathe to quell his angry behaviour. Fight? Do you want to fight? the man shouted at Herbie as he shuffled up the bus behind him. The two men stopped off the bus, and what happened next is captured on CCTV cameras just outside the Secret Intelligence Service building on the south side of Vauxhall Bridge. The footage shows Herbie trying to back away from the man who was now brandishing the knife he'd earlier threatened with. The man appears to back Herbie against the wall and a short scuffle ensued 
during which time the man thrust forward and stabbed Herbie in the chest area. Stunned onlookers from the bus all witnessed this appalling scene and were now watching as the knifeman made his escape south across the Albert Embankment. One man who had seen the horrible events unfolding from the bus was 35-year-old David French, who decided to chase the attacker. Again, we got to ask the question, having witnessed this, would you have chased the attacker? David did. He set off after the man he later described as a short man with a West Indian accent, a rough-looking face, wide eyes and a beard. As he followed this man, he saw him throw something down into a bush, something of which we will come back to later. Only five minutes after the assault on Herbie, the attacker had managed to evade David French in the Vauxhall Gardens estate. I couldn't find him, and I was really angry and disappointed with myself, David later said. Meanwhile, back on Vauxhall Bridge, Herbie had been receiving emergency treatment from the medical staff who arrived by the air ambulance. They actually performed open-heart surgery on him at the scene. He was airlifted to the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel and he did manage to complete this journey, but tragically, it would be his last, as 56-year-old Herbie died shortly after his arrival at hospital. With the case having now migrated to murder, police were hopeful of a rapid conclusion and discovery of this man who behaved so bizarrely and brutally, all in the full glare of a horrified London public in the middle of the afternoon. Their earliest inquiries, however, proved frustratingly fruitless. Remember the item that the killer had thrown into the bush? It was no murder weapon, unfortunately. Instead, and rather oddly, it was three pairs of rolled-up grey trousers, with waist sizes of 28 and 30 inches, both sizes deemed far too small to have fitted the man they were searching for. Of the 37 passengers aboard the bus that day, only 14 had come forward in the first few weeks since the murder, and the police were clearly keen to speak to the remaining 23 who may have had that crucial piece of information that they needed. In the hope of drawing more witnesses forward, Police used a televised tactic of appealing through the BBC's Crime Watch programme when it was good, and the case was broadcast on Tuesday, the 8th of September 1998. An artist impression was created from the information provided by David French, and this was circulated through the programme as well as appealing for those outstanding passengers to make themselves known. They also reached out to anyone who did currently or had worked in the mental health sphere, the inference here being that the perpetrator was suffering from some form of mental illness, with presenter Nick Ross presuming that the man was, in his own words, psychotic. I guess this was 24 years ago. The following morning, after the televised reconstruction and appeal, the print press were also parading images of the suspect and Scotland Yard took the unusual step of releasing an array of graphic photographs of the moments leading up to and including when Herbie lost his life. The Mirror newspaper published three photographs, the first of which vividly shows Herbie's calming demeanour with the man as he evidently attempts to reason with the stranger. The other two pictures 
show the sudden escalation in fury as Herbie is ultimately knifed against the wall. One officer said, We want to speak to anyone who saw any part of this incident. The man we are hunting is very dangerous and he could do it again. The killer was described as a black man in his 40s with a short afro haircut and grey flecked beard. It soon transpired that the artist's impression would prove crucial in the hunt for the killer thanks to its astounding accuracy. On Friday, September the 18th, 10 days after the Crime Watch appeal, murder squad detectives had received some 300 calls from the public, such was the accuracy of the artist's impression of the suspect. Initially, 10 callers had all given the same name, but the police swiftly eliminated this man from their inquiries. Fortunately, however, the distinctive e-fit of the man had brought forward another name, that of Martin Gibbs, an unemployed 46-year-old of Kennington, South London. Police were able to arrest Gibbs in Brixton before hauling him in for questioning at Tooting Police Station. David French's description had been, according to the police, 95% accurate and played a huge part in Gibbs's capture, with David having also played himself in the reconstruction, which ultimately resulted in the case becoming one of the most successful in Crime Watch history. In a rather ironic and somewhat ghoulish twist in light of what would later happen, Gibbs was at this time known to harbour a strong grudge against the female presenter of Crime Watch, Giordando, who was, as you'll be aware, sadly a victim of murder herself in 1999. It is thought that Gibbs's dislike of the presenter stemmed from his resentment of the use of a good-looking woman being used to encourage people to call in and grasp people up. My goodness, what a loser. Like those misguided hard men who use the expression that snitches get stitches. I mean, really. Back to Gibbs, and a friend of his later told how when Gildando was killed, Gibbs certainly didn't shed any tears. In fact, he had a bit of a celebration. On Monday the 21st of September, Gibbs appeared before South Western Magistrates Court in Battersea. Here he was charged with Herbie's murder and remanded in custody until his trial date was set at the Old Bailey. This arrived six months later, in March 1999, with Gibbs charged with murdering Herbie Williams. Prosecuting Gibbs was Richard Hallwell, QC, who relayed to the court the details of how Gibbs had followed Herbie from the bus before plunging a 12-inch knife into his chest. A more senseless and unnecessary loss of life would be difficult to imagine, he told the court. The principal witness was David French, the man who had followed Gibbs in the immediate aftermath of the attack. David recalled how an argument had broken out, and he'd heard Gibbs shout, Leave me alone, and saw him digging around in his pocket for something. I couldn't believe this man had stabbed somebody in broad daylight for no reason. I couldn't let him get away with it, and no one else was doing anything, so I followed him. Having pleaded not guilty, Gibbs's defence was based on the fact that he'd been drunk and they'd merely acted in self-defence as Herbie had provoked him. 
A brief look at the photographs and CCTV footage would obviously contradict this notion. Implausible as this idea certainly sounded, there is of course always the element of jeopardy that a jury may make the wrong decision. Thankfully in this case though, the jury took little time in establishing what they believed the truth to be, and in just over an hour they reached their verdict at the Old Bailey, which was that Martin Gibbs was guilty. The judge told Gibbs, The jury has found you guilty of the murder of a decent man who was simply going about his lawful business. He ordered Gibbs to serve life in prison. The judge also expressed his admiration towards David French for the bravery he demonstrated. David was given £500 upon the recommendation from the judge, with the money coming from public funds for the extremely courageous and public-spirited way that he'd followed the armed and highly dangerous man. David was a former care assistant with Kensington and Chelsea, age concern, and originally came from Sierra Leone. Upon receipt of his money and a certificate, he said, If I had to do it again, I would. Only this time I wouldn't lose him. Following the guilty verdict, the court was advised that the incident, unsurprisingly, had not been the first time that Gibbs had committed a violent offence. It was heard he'd a list of over 20 previous convictions, including wounding a former girlfriend with a knife, as well as carrying knives in public spaces on multiple occasions. It appeared that the escalation into murder was something that unfortunately had been very much a probable outcome in the case of Martin Gibbs. Detective Inspector Steve Peck said of the crime, This was shocking, that a man could be killed in broad daylight in the heart of the capital over what began as a seemingly trivial incident on a bus. It is a dreadful waste of the life of a bus passenger whose public-spirited behaviour led to his death in a nightmarish scenario. It was made doubly shocking by the fact that Herbie Williams was a truly gentle man, a devout Christian. A more tragic and futile waste of life cannot be imagined. I hope Londoners can take reassurance that this nightmarish crime has been successfully detected and its perpetrator Martin Gibbs has been brought to justice. It seems that Herbie's selfless nature was a trait for other members of his family. Herbie's sister was at court. Gloria worked helping elderly people in the US. And outside court, she spoke in support of her brother's actions that day and emphasised that he'd been correct in trying to calm Martin Gibbs down. My brother was right in speaking out. I'd have done the same thing. He was a cool and collective person. He would always walk away from a fight or an argument. Jerry Ford was the coordinator of the Southwark Victim Support Scheme, where Herbie had offered so much for his time volunteering. Jerry described Herbie as one of life's good guys. He said that Herbie was a very good volunteer, he was always available, and would do a huge amount of work, sometimes two cases a week, and he would travel anywhere in the borough, which not all our volunteers can do. He described Herbie as a self-effacing colleague who wouldn't say no to any request. In many ways he was ideal because he came across as a dignified and calm person, which is just what victims need. 
We just knew little about this small area of his life, and it was only afterwards that we found out about his church going, his family and friends, and how well liked he was. And that should have been it. But unfortunately, you can never underestimate the greed of our friends in the legal profession chasing another payday. And in 2003, Gibbs would once again be made to appear back at the Old Bailey after a retrial was ordered. Following the decision, there had been a lack of medical evidence in the original trial. How can medical evidence matter to this verdict? Anyway, what do I know about the law when there are so many qualified people who seem to know it all so well? And that's just on Facebook. This time around, in December 2003, Gibbs claimed he'd acted with diminished responsibility. A different defence, perhaps, but no different an outcome, as once more, Gibbs was sentenced to life in prison. Where thankfully, as far as I'm aware, he remains today, languishing in a prison cell. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's another of those stories which feels to me almost impossible to comprehend. Does it to you too? I suppose maybe because we've all been in a similar situation and made to feel scared by the actions of strangers. I've been there on the tube a number of times and it's a horrible feeling. After all, it doesn't feel fair, does it? You haven't done anything wrong. You're just minding your own business. So why should you be made to feel like this? Why should you be scared for your own safety? And same with Herbie Williams, on a bus travelling home from a prayer session of all things. Something which, of course, he should have been able to do at ease. Instead, he encountered a man pent up with such agitation and anger that he would be unleashed so brutally upon his innocent victim who lost his life on the streets of London. And although this was 24 years ago, as you've seen over the weekend and last week, there is still so much violence on the streets of London, so many innocent people losing their lives. Such indiscriminate violence as we've heard about today always feels shocking and troubling. That it should have happened to such a gentle man, intent on only devoting much of his life to helping others, only adds, I think, another layer of anguish alongside that painful feeling of waste that such a good life should have been extinguished so pointlessly and abruptly in such brutal public and harrowing circumstances. Our thoughts remain with the family and friends of Herbie Williams. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. And to discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to Facebook and search UK True Crime. There's 85,000 of us who talk UK True Crime 24-7, 365 days a year. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. The most recent bonus episode, full-length bonus episode, was released last week. And also there you'll find loads of updates, behind-the-scenes stuff and competitions. For less than a dollar a month, come and join us. You can cancel any time. It's a great community. That's patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Thank you again to Chris Wood for sharing this story with us. And so until we speak again next week, it's goodbye from the UK's 
37th most popular true crime podcast host. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy, <laughs> despite, despite all the others. And most of all, stay classy. Cheerio for now.